In this podcast, Dr. Michael Kaplan, Foots Consulting Pediatric Psychiatrist, speaks to kindergarten parents about the social and emotional development children experience in their first year of elementary school. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, just by way of introduction, so I'm the consulting psychiatrist here, and I like to explain to people what that means at this talk, because you're all just starting off. Um, it doesn't mean that I psychoanalyze your children. <laughs> um, in fact, I never or meet... The, or the parents. <laughs> or the... <laughs> true. Or Chrissy. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm here really as a background person, so my consultation is more to Kasu, to Chrissy, to John Turner, to Carol, to administratively, and to teachers, um, so that your children will never meet me or know me. Um, there may be some situations that come up where I'll hear about your children, um, if there are issues that come up, but I'm really sort of in the background, so I'm not here ever. I don't see children, you know, at the school, and really just part of the whole team of uh, professionals here who are working to really instill that love of learning and to help them get over. Every kid is. We'll talk about this. There are always speed bumps. It's not a smooth road to road to development. Um, and I'm just one part of the team here, and I think this is my 20th year here. Um, which is making me feel old. Um, the other thing that's making me feel old is I don't even have any teenagers anymore. So, um, but uh, I do, I, I, I did successfully parent out of um, kindergarten and you two will do so as well. I'm just trying to, <laughs> I guarantee it. Um, so what we're, we're gonna, what, the way I like to structure this is Chris, it's very, very informal. Uh, I'm gonna just give some prepared remarks, um, uh, things that I think are important to know about five-year-olds, things that I think are common you know, sort of more universal around this age, and then really leave enough time for a conversation because I know parents are often hungry for information uh, about their, you know, about what's going on with their children uh, and how to, how to share. This is also a moment for you guys to also share your stories because I think what helps parenting a lot is to have people who are going through it at the same time. You know, we don't live in villages anymore. We don't have extended family around us. They're not, so it becomes really our friends uh, who help us, and if we are lucky enough to have family members around to help, there's always a million questions, right? You're always, and that doesn't end. You know, it starts with pregnancy and goes up and uh, um, on and on, and it's helpful to have people around. Now, and today, um, when I started giving this talk, we couldn't just look everything up, and I was trying to think, well, what's so different today about, you know, parenting? And one thing is there's so much information accessible, but it's all digital. It's not real time and real life, and, and I don't dis discourage you from, from doing and looking. Um, and seeing, seeing what's online, but I think there's nothing more important than real live communication. Like, I have a five-year-old, you have a five-year-old. So this is sort of the part, start of this process that you will be um, you know, entering as you, know, you move through foot school. So, so the main theme here is about social and emotional development and what's going on in the minds of um, children. As they're exploring, as they're playing, as they're inventing, as they're tinkering, their minds, we'll get to this in a little bit, are completely different than ours. Their brains are functioning at a very, it's almost like they're a different species. Um, and uh, you probably can tell that as those of you who had difficult mornings getting your child to school, <laughs> if only we could tantrum on our way to work and say, I'm not wearing those boots. Um, but, uh, but there are a lot of pressures on families, um, getting back to sort of the social things that are going on uh, and children today. It's important to sort out the pressures from your own values um, and sort of what you think is right, what you think is right for your family and so these pressures that you're feeling and experiencing. Um, and I also want to encourage you to use the, the, your teachers, uh, the people like Christy and Kasuth, these are people who have been around five-year-olds five for a very long time. So I think it's also important, not just among yourselves, but really the school is a tremendous resource. The other thing I always think about when I give a talk like this is that there are always inherent risks um, in this kind of talk, because here I am, an expert coming to talk to you about your five-year-olds. 
Um, and there can be this pressure that there's a right way to do this. Um, there is no right way to do this. I don't want anyone to leave this talk feeling they're doing it all wrong, or even partially wrong, because um, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's no such thing as a perfect child. Um, and, uh, but, but, but there's this image, I think, that we all hold in our minds of some perfect thing out there. And if we research it enough, or talk enough, or do it even better, um, and that's sort of a false you know, model. Um, and that, that where we really are, an idealized model often gets filled up with a lot of anxiety. Um, and I think that anxiety is sort of what parents have to deal with. Uh, and it's hard to get back to, okay, you know, be mindful about where we are in our lives and where our kids are and, and remind ourselves that actually things are, are going pretty well. Um, but that anxiety can kind of drive a lot of behavior and it's an anxiety that we have to deal with all the time. There are many, also, the other concept, there are many ways to parent, just like there's no perfect child or perfect parent. There are many styles of parenting, all of which are very effective, like we've known this for a very long time. It's a very famous um, British pediatrician and child developmentalist uh, named uh, Winnicott who had a statement that I sort of live by, which is um, there's a concept of like the good enough parenting. Again, you don't have to get 100. It's not a competition. You know, really, you know, B, B plus, I think is, is really good. Sometimes we get a D, sometimes we fail. Um, and uh, so it's, it's more like, so it's not like baking, and here's my chili line that you were remembering. I was thinking, what was my chili line? So it's, you know, baking, you have to, I'm not a baker, my wife's a baker, and everything has to be perfect if people are bakers. I'm more of like a cook and I throw things in, and it hopefully comes out okay. Parenting is more like making chili, um, less like making some beautiful macaron, you know, that you could uh, uh, get out perfectly. Um, Five-year-olds are also very unpredictable. So that's probably one of the key concepts. Like you don't know from one day to the next who you're going to get. You know when they wake up or when you pick them up or you come home from work. Um, and uh, and just to show you that um, even though I'm quote unquote an expert, like everything doesn't even go fine in the house of a child psychiatrist. So my favorite story to tell at this moment is that my daughter's uh, in kindergarten. We had our November conference, and we got you know nice reports and the teachers knew her well um, and we felt really comfortable and uh, she was a little bit young for her grade um, and they said wow like you know Lily's doing well and she's a little young for her grade and everything's sort of going fine um, and then we made the mistake uh, of uh, over Thanksgiving seeing a movie I'm now dating myself from like 19 years ago because she's 24 called Rugrats in Paris I don't know if the Rugrats are even still a concept but the, at the end of that movie, and it's one of those Friday after Thanksgiving, you're looking for something to do with your kid, and thank God there's a movie, and you go see the movie. And the movie ended uh, with that song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Um, and it ran over the credits. And that's like a really great, thumping, fun song for those of you who know or remember Who Let the Dogs Out. It's kind of activating. Um, and about a week later, we get a call from the kindergarten teacher saying, uh, remember what we said at the conference, how well she was doing, but it actually turns out that we're having some concerns about Lily. I'm like, what the? You know? <laughs> Um, and so they say that what, it ha what was happening was at lunchtime, she would start singing at the top of her lungs while she banged on the table, who let the dogs out? <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't do anything, you know, and like most teachers, they, they try a few strat, they don't call you right away, and that's another like, message, like, you know, they're not going to call you right away with every little thing. So they said we tried A, we tried B, we tried C. Of course, anxiety rises, the temperature goes up in our house. My wife and I, what? We called the preschool teachers, like, had you ever seen this before? And they hadn't seen this before. Uh, and so, um, so I decided I'm going to go have lunch, you know, the classic thing, you know, go have lunch with your child. It's a really nice thing to do in kindergarten. So I had lunch the next week. Um, and by that time, it actually was settling down, you know, and then, you know, then it sort of went away. And it's a fun family story that we often tell. Um, and there's some inklings of that still in her personality that come out from time to time. We call that the rugrats gene that gets expressed. Um, but, um, but again, it's kind of like an example of, 
you know, a lot embedded in that story that hopefully things will come out over the course of this talk about how to just be relaxed, deal with your own anxiety, you know, talk to the teachers, you know, figure out, you know, that a lot of things are these, like I said, bumps along the way. Um, and, uh, and we just have to kind of ride with them. Um, so kindergarten is a big deal. It's a big moment. Like most of your children have been in, uh, you know, settings and schools and things before, but there's still something big about kindergarten. Does anyone, I remember my first day of kindergarten. Anyone else remember their first day of kindergarten? No, just me. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I couldn't wait to get to kindergarten. <laughs> and I get to kindergarten, and um, I had a mom who's, we were always early, so I was like, probably like the first kid or the second kid in the classroom. There's a little girl crying in the corner. Um, and I thought, what's she crying about? This is awesome. Like, we get to go to kindergarten. But that also shows there's a wide range of how your children are doing, all totally normal. So there's some kids who are probably still dealing with some separation issues, and some kids who are like, you know, want to walk themselves to school if you live nearby. Uh, and all of that is kind of a range of how children deal with separation. Separation is something that they have to manage really at the very beginning of kindergarten. It's a new thing, you know, it's a new building, it's a big school, there are big kids around. Uh, they go to different specials. So even if they were obviously in preschools before, like everything happens in a contained setting. And here, you know, they've got this big campus that they're on. So it is really a, a big setting. And even if they're not showing signs of separation, they're all managing it in their own ways. Um, and so, but by the time we get to October, pretty much we stop seeing, you know, sort of maybe overt signs of, of separation. Um, but what do we know about um, the brains of five-year-olds? Uh, and I find this often to be reassuring. So the, the, the brain of a five-year-old, if I had a slide to show, and I have slides about this that I use in other settings, but it's as if their brain is on fire. It's like uh, consumed with like a forest fire. And what I mean by that is that their brains are actually working twice as fast as ours. They consume twice the amount of metabolic energy of the body as, as our brains do. So our brains use about like 25% and theirs are probably 50 plus. Uh, and what's going on inside the brain? Well, they're forming all of these connections. So our brain is a very redundant organ. So we have many more um, synapses and connections between neurons than we will ever need. And what happens in the first five to 10 years of life is the brain is deciding based on experience which ones are important. So which experiences you have will lead to um, strengthening of those connections and which experiences you don't have lead to what's called pruning. So the brain is on fire, all of these, um, uh, you know, they're, they're firing, they're connecting, they're using a lot of energy. And that helps me explain like why you see what you do in a classroom and why we could not have this kind of discussion with the kindergartners, right? So the way the kindergarten class is set up really matches sort of what these very experienced teachers know matters and is selling to our children here. Um, and that they couldn't pay attention, they couldn't retain this information. Um, they would get so interested in everything else going on but my talking. Um, and uh, 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 as, as the nods show, like they don't sit in rows, they don't sit in desks. Um, that they're allowed, their, their, their day has lots of transitions and they're giving, given a lot of materials uh, to use uh, in order to explore the world. Um, which gets me um, to my next point, which is um, the difference between adults and children and how we learn. Um, and so there's a, uh, child, uh, a child, it's a child and infant researcher uh, out in, um, uh, on the West Coast named Alison Gopnik and she's written some really good books about child rearing and parenting, which I recommend to you. Um, but she has this concept of children uh, being explorers and adults being exploiters of our worlds. And so, and so that goes back to how these brains work. So the child's brain doesn't know what's important, so everything's important. It's kind of like they all have ADD, um, which to me is an attention overload disorder. So they're paying attention to everything, and everything is equally interesting, um, whereas our brains are very streamlined. 
So what happens in our brains with development and as kids get older is that if you remember, the neuron has a nerve cell and a long axon and a terminal ending that communicates with the next. That'll, that'll be the end of my biology lecture. Um, but what happens over time is those axons get coated with myelin, for those of you who remember high school biology or neuroscience in college, and that myelinization happens slowly at first but more rapidly in adolescence. So when the brain is myelinated, that allows more effective and efficient and speedy communication. So the brain, our brains, can, um, are much more efficient and can get from point A to point B very quickly, whereas the unmyelinated brain of a five-year-old is working much more slowly but much more open. So as they walk from here to the kindergarten classroom, it takes them a long time. So if Chrissy was to leave her and she had to get to kindergarten, you know, she would just get, you know, I've got to get there this time, and you would get there, and you wouldn't pay attention to every little acorn and every little branch and every little leaf and every little, oh, there's a fire engine. Fire engine! Where's the fire? Um, uh, you know, and so everything is important, and it should be, because they're trying to figure out their world. They're all like little scientists, right? And, and that sort of concept of the little scientist exploring everything um, is how their brain is going to learn and how they will start to myelinate their brain. Um, my favorite story here is that my, uh, my office is on Bradley Street, which is like behind SOM near Trumbull Street. And, you know, I park near SOM. And so I walk at the end of the day to my car. And I was one day I was walking to my car and I like, just like that, you know, I was accusing you of maybe walking too fast. That's me. Like, I'm like, go in my car to maybe get home and, you know, get to the supermarket and cook dinner. Like, we have a list in our head when we wake up. They don't have a list in their head. They're like, what's new? Like, what's going on? Um, and so I'm walking really fast, and I see this little girl in this little flowery dress and her mom. They're walking up the hill behind SOM, and she's like, there's a whole grassy area, very pretty area behind that building. And she's like, explore to something, like exploring, like picking up the little caterpillar, looking at the caterpillar, whatever it is. And, I'm, and she's weaving. I'm like, I got to get to my car. You know, like, and I get just past them. I turn around. I, realize, I know these people. <laughs> I know the mom. I know the daughter. Um, and to me, they captured like how we would just we go from point A to B, uh, and they're they're not the same. The the experiment that proves that very convincingly is um, what I call the gorilla experiment, the gorilla suit experiment that some of you may have learned about somewhere along the way, where they took a, um, a group of adults uh, and a psychologist and a group of children. Um, and they had two people on a screen, it was a videotape, and they had two adults passing a ball back and forth. And the task was to count how many times the ball went back and forth. But halfway through the videotape, a person in a gorilla costume walks through. Every single kid stopped counting and was like, oh wow, a gorilla costume. <laughs> and I, I can't remember the exact number, I forgot to look it up this weekend, but it was like half the adults didn't even see the per like they were like one, two, three, four, five, you know, they were like in a not even, even see. So again, that's how their brains are working, um, which is very different. They, again, they're a different species. So they're, they're uh, uh, engaging with their world in a very different way uh, than we do. Um, uh, and so, but how are they engaging with the world? And another key part of what I want to um, leave you with is that everything happens in a relationship. So none of this happens in isolation or alone. That everything has happened with a relationship, and the most important relationship, even though they may not always let you know this, is with you. So you are all the most important relationship. So they may be having a tantrum, being fussy, or um, uh, you know, giving you some grief that only continues, uh, <laughs> accelerates over time. But even if they were teenagers, you're still the most important relationship to you. Because um, relationships are the substrate through which all this happens. It's how they learn language and how they learn how to be a friend and how they learn to be a student. And then those relationships gets transferred once you get to, from kinder, into kindergarten to their teachers. 
Um, and so they're going to form very intense and very meaningful and hopefully productive engaging relationships with their teachers. But everything is going to happen uh, within that relationship. James Comer, who's a very famous child psychiatrist um, who worked for many years at um, the Child Study Center, once gave a talk in which he said the three most important things in child development are relationships, relationships, and relationships. Uh, I can't really emphasize that more uh, enough in terms of the time you spend with them, the things you do with them, the, the amount of time you can like, just be on the floor with them and playing, finding out about their day, and we'll get that in, to that in a little bit. Um, other, you know, the um, other couple of R's that I like to think about are you know, resilience and reflection. And so what we're really, at the end of the day, trying to do with our children is to teach them social and emotional competence, right? We want them to be able to um, you know, regulate their emotions, be a good friend, be persistent, sh persistent show motivation, um, show dedication, be able to take turns, be able to develop a sense of empathy, right? All of those kinds of core concepts of what we broadly think about as emotional intelligence. Um, and what we found, which is very interesting, and I know Carol has spoken a lot about this, is that probably the most important factor in terms of success in school and success in life is having a very strong core emotional competence um, and emotional intelligence. And that's sort of part of what's going on school-wide you know, as we go into this year and next. Um, and that it's not about drilling them with flashcards and drilling them with, you know, you know, phonics and, and uh, addition cards and subtraction cards and sort of all that, that, that the, there's much more to the brain than the cognitive parts of the brain, which of course are going to be stimulated and worked on, and this is a school that's going to celebrate that. But there's an equal partnership, I think, with social emotional competence, and that really comes from home. Um, and that comes in the ways in which we're interacting with our children, the stories we tell them, the time we spend with them, how we respond um, to, to all the things that are going on uh, in their life. Um, but you know, emphasizing things like reading, writing, and arithmetic, which are core things that they need to know. We've come a long way um, from those days uh, in understanding that who they are as people, sort of as opposed to what they are as people, are going to be m much more grounding in terms of wh who we want them to be and how successful they're going to be uh, uh, moving forward. Um, so, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the things you may encounter with him. So anxieties, so anxieties and friendship are the two things I'm going to address uh, first. So, so kids um, get anxious and there's a steady parade of anxieties that happen very early on. So first there's you know, stranger anxiety when they're about nine months old, then there's separation anxiety when they're hopefully 18 months old and then it goes away. Um, and then as they get older, there's a typical pattern of the kinds of anxieties that happen. So five-year-olds get very um, uh, 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 anxious about things like loud noises, the dark, animals, so very concrete things that can happen in their life. We rarely see three-year-olds worrying about those things. They can have nightmares. Um, the way I like to think about anxieties, it's sort of evolution's way of keeping us of them close to us. Because if you think about it, any time child has a fear, what are they going to do? They're going to call mommy, daddy, right? They want us to be close to them uh, so that we um, respond to those things and help them with that anxiety. And that's where emotional regulation is one of the ways in which it can come, come, come to be. It also can be a social anxiety. They can start to worry about moving into, say, friendships, like who likes me, who doesn't like me. Um, and there are a lot of gr wonderful children's books about this. You were telling me about one just the other day about the elephant. Uh, hip oh, Humperdinck. Humperdinck. Which your kids have all heard. <laughs> uh, sort of about, um, one of my personal favorites that I need to read, Humperdinck, is Wemberly Worried. Uh, about, like, it's a Kevin Henke's book about a girl who goes to um, kindergarten um, and kind of what her anxieties are. Um, and so, uh, so, uh, so talking to them about their anxieties, listening uh, to them. Um, 
But that gets to friendship, which becomes sort of an ongoing kind of place. And I know often at this talk, some parents are worried about, you know, do they have a friend and is everyone being nice to them? And I just want to like, have everyone take a breath and relax um, because no one will have a best friend right away in kindergarten. They will not have, I mean, they might, and that'd be an outlier, right? Everything's a bell-shaped curve. But I like to think of the concept of friendlies uh, as opposed to friend. And if your child is having friendlies, which is basically kids who say hello and they play with and they smile and they direct, say, hi, Joey, you're here, or, you know, that they say hello to, um, this thing keeps falling, sorry about that. Um, uh, you know, then they're doing okay. Because sometimes there's a worry, you know, there's a, 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 this notion that everyone has to have a best friend. Um, and sometimes kids do have a best friend, but that to me is not the goal um, of kindergarten or even development because there are advantages of having a best friend. It's really nice to have a best friend, but there's also a lot of disadvantages. So the downside of a best friend is what happens one day your best friend is not your best friend anymore. Um, and which gets me to another point at this age is that not to take everything at face value. So I found it very helpful in my own home to sort of let things rest for a while. Like if they come home and say, so-and-so is not my friend anymore, so-and-so is being mean to me, um, rather than sort of taking up the mantle and calling the teacher and finding out or just agreeing with them, like what do they mean by a best friend? What do they mean by being mean to me? You know, what do they mean by, you know, what are they doing and what happened? My, my recommendation in those kinds of moments, and they will happen to all of you at some point, whether it's in kindergarten or first grade or fifth grade, it's a normal part of child development is to be included and to be excluded, you know, to have friends and have friends move away. And especially in kindergarten, they're all like molecules like bouncing off each other. If you go to the classroom, they're like, playing with different kids, and a best friend on Monday is not a best friend on Tuesday. Next week is a different best friend. There's groups form and they disband. It's kind of like when you look in a microscope in high school biology and you're looking at the like, parts of the cell, everything's moving around. I, that's exactly how I would encourage you to think about kindergarten and how their social relationships are. And, and realize that they, they, they will grow and develop and who their friend is this week may be, may be different. Um, so, so they, um, and they can come home anxious. So my recommendation there is just to ask them those kinds of questions. Like kids come home and they may use very sophisticated words. So we have a population of students here with very high verbal IQs. I haven't, we haven't tested it, but it's sort of you know, a known thing that it's a community that values reading, the literacy, and kids arrive here with big words. But that can also be confusing to parents because they can come home and use some kind of very big word. Um, and uh, like a kid in my, uh, that I was evaluating at a different school this week used the word mischievous. Yeah, and I was like, wow. Like, but I asked, oh, what is mischievous? He had no idea what mischievous meant. Like, he gave me some, <laughs> but I could have walked away and thought, you know, he, wow, like, that's, you know. Um, so, so if they come home with a big word, if they come home, like, or someone has a girlfriend, this is sort of maybe older, but like someone has a girlfriend. So this is my fifth grade talk. I said, like, ask them what it means to have a girlfriend, what it means to have a boyfriend. So, you know, celebrate their verbal abilities and keep encouraging that and, 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 and promoting that, but also step back. Because when you have a very smart kid or you have a kid who's pretty verbal, um, you, you might assume that along with that high verbal skill, like everything else tracks with it, but it really doesn't. So what we know about the brain is you can have advanced cognitive abilities, but emotional intelligence really goes at like a steady pace. It's like the tortoise and the hare, like emotional intelligence, social competence, those move along slowly. They, they can't be accelerated um, beyond sort of a normal range, whereas cognitive ability, you know, we can have kids in kindergarten who can do multiplication, but their emotional abilities are really like their peers. Uh, so it's very important to sort of focus on what they mean, what they say, uh, and how they say it. Um, the other thing that's very important in speaking about their you know, verbal abilities is that they're still living in a very physical world. Again, this is how your five-year-old can fool you. 
So they can be having this maybe sophisticated conversation. You may overhear them in the back of the car having a, you know, some kind of conversation. It's like, oh, wow, that, that's so cool. And it is cool. Um, but they're still in a physical world. They're still in a nonverbal world. They're watching. Remember, they're explorers. They're little scientists. So they're watching everything that goes around them. And so um, they're paying close attention um, to us. You know, they're paying close attention to what we do. So in terms of developing social competence, emotional resilience, uh, when we tell them things like, take your time, or don't be distracted, um, and we're doing things that are you know, rushing around and not being distracted or being on our cell phones all the time, um, or maybe not treating someone so nicely, you know, they're watching everything that we're doing, and so we're their best role models. Um, and again, back to there's no perfect parent and no perfect child. I'm not saying that um, we all have to be perfect all the time. We're allowed to, there's so many do-overs in parenting, it's kind of incredible. And that's sort of how plastic the brain is. And I think it's also important for our kids to sometimes see us lose a little bit or have a frustrating moment. Like we also don't have to be like Stepford wives or dads, you know, where everything is perfect and we're never mad. And um, Those are important things for them to see. Um, the important part about that is for them to see how we manage it. So if we like blow off steam and then you never heard from again, you know, that's kind of you know, the kid, they don't know where to place that. Like a five-year-old doesn't know where to place us being mad or irritated or, you know, frustrated. What's important later is have a conversation with them and say, you know, you know, mommy or daddy was having a bad moment. Do you ever have bad moments? Do you ever feel mad or angry? You can turn that into, you know, a conversation and everyone gets angry. And then you can say, well, this is what I did to help myself. I did A, B, or C. You know, so they're, they're watching us. And so if we, if they say to us, are you sad, daddy? and you've just been crying because you got bad news, <laughs> you don't say, oh, no, I'm not sad. Um, they'll, those mismatches are really tough for kids. Um, so, so honesty, it's very important, I think, to be you know, honest, um, which is different than exposing them to things beyond their you know, years and to give a full disclosure about what you might actually be angry about. You simplify it down to uh, a five-year-old uh, five language. Um, what else about kids? Um, often. You know, we can think about where kids are going wrong or where they're, you know, we're worried about them. But I also want you to think about the positive sides of your children. Um, that's a really important, sort of like how we work as adults, like when we're having a bad day or we're going through a rough time, what helps us? This is going well, this is going well, you know, having trouble. You know, in some part of your life, you think about what else is going really well. Well, what's amazing about five-year-olds is I think there's like an altruism gene uh, that gets turned on and reinforced here. Um, so, like, who wants to help? Like, all the hands go up. It's very, it's amazing when you see the kids at the school, like, if someone is upset, like, other kids will go to help and comfort that. Um, so we work a lot here on trying to develop those empathic skills uh, in children. Um, like, who wants to feed the bunny? Who wants to water the plants? Um, what I, what, one of the things I always notice about this school, sort of very subtle, kind of nonverbal thing, is how the kids open the doors for you. I, I want you to sort of Pay attention to that. I was literally happened, I love it because it always happens when I'm giving a talk. I'm coming into this building and this some middle school kid just like opens the door and says hello to me. He doesn't know I am, I've never seen him before. Uh, but those kinds of little things really should be uh, you know, encouraged. So in the social functioning of a kindergarten classroom, sometimes aggression comes up. We all have aggression inside of ourselves um, and a sort of part of the nature and uh, sort of half of us is a part of us is aggressive and the other half is like fighting it off. Um, and we all have to manage it in our own lives and we also have to think about it you know, with our children. Um, there's a healthy expression of aggression. So where do we see that? We see that on the playground. I, mean, I think chase is probably the most universal game ever played. Um, it's been played for centuries, I would argue. Um, and we see a lot of that. So outside play is a great way for it to come out. 
Um, people often think that boys are aggressive and girls aren't aggressive. I want to disabuse everybody of that notion. So we know that they're sort of equally aggressive, but sometimes it comes out in different ways. We know that people who tend to be more verbal and maybe so more precocious use more words and language and exclusion and social sides of things. And, and um, people who are more into their bodies, whether it's boys or girls, um, tend to be more you know, rough and tumble and maybe you know, use, use their bodies more. You know, fortunately, we don't see too much of it and the teachers work on it. Um, but I think it's something that you know, uh, we have to you know, pay attention to. The other thing that um, uh, uh, I think about in terms of aggression, in terms of the gender notion of aggression, is that um, uh, you know, we, we also see um, outside play. So often they'll be playing things like Star Wars or Spider-Man or Batman. And here, this comes to like the don't take everything at face value. Like most of the kids have never seen Spider-Man or Star Wars, uh, uh, you know, or actually seen some movie with aggression. So sometimes you might come home and think, wow, every kid has seen Spider-Man. You know, or your kid comes home and says, I want to see Spider-Man too. That's again a question you can ask the teacher. Has everybody really seen Spider-Man? Um, and most times they haven't seen uh, Spider-Man. It really is not, um, uh, but, but it's something that so often is like a contagion effect. Like one kid has seen it or has an older sibling who's seen it or has heard about it, and all of a sudden everyone knows everything about uh, uh, Spider-Man. Um, uh, so what about cliques and things like that, back to social development? They really don't exist in kindergarten. The, 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 the abstract concept of understanding a larger social group uh, doesn't happen until fifth or sixth grade. We really don't see that formally happening until fifth or sixth grade. So fortunately, there's a protection uh, factor with kindergartners. And again, I, I want you to, if you start to hear those kinds of conversations, rather than stewing at home, um, it's really important to ask the teacher what's going on. Um, kids here, again, the kindergartners are very, uh, very fluid. Um, I want to um, leave time for questions. Uh, are there any, um, uh, I have more things that I could cover, but I also want to make sure we have um, you know, plenty of time for questions. I just want to make sure if there's anything, um, uh, yeah, so the, the other thing I want to talk about is limit setting and frustration tolerance. Um, so all of your kids will be getting frustrated. <laughs> Uh, if you have a child who doesn't get frustrated, doesn't show their frustration, I would sort of question what, what's, what's going on with that child. Um, uh, and they get very frustrated um, because there are things that they now want to do that they can't do. So now that they're at a, a school with older kids and they're seeing a lot of things, and with each phase of development, they get new skills, but all of it hasn't kind of arrived at the same time. So they might be able to appreciate certain things or want to do certain things that they really can't do. And part of our job is uh, helping them manage it. Um, and they might get very angry. And an important reminder to parents is that you're living with someone who feels more than they think. Um, and so that to help them address this is sort of home-based frustration uh, is that it's probably when they're really angry and flailing around and screaming and yelling. It's not the time to try and engage them in a conversation. You want to meet them where they are. It's kind of like the toddler. The other, you know, it's easier with a toddler. You're not going to have a long conversation with a two-year-old. But I would take that parenting concept as a two-year-old and still apply it to a five-year-old. You, you really have to wait till the, the, the temperature has you know, come down um, before you can engage with them. It's kind of like yourself. If you're all activated, you know when you have that angry email and you're like, like, don't send it, right? You, you, you wait 15 minutes, you go, oh, thank God I didn't send that email, right? Um, right, we've all been there. Sometimes you send it by mistake, you go, oh my God, why did I wait? Uh, or you send it to the wrong person. But that's, that's a different talk. They're not that different from that, right? So they're in that same space as you are. We can't use this as a concept in mindfulness um, where you, know, you have a wise mind and an emotion mind, and you don't want to be working in with your, emo when your emotion mind is, is sort of like at front and center, 
you don't want to be making major life decisions. You don't want to be saying things you don't, will regret later. Five-year-olds are the same way. So if they're in their emotional uh, state at that moment, you just want to be, remember, they're nonverbal. You just want to sit with them. You might say a few words. You don't want to engage in some sort of high-level conversation about what was the meaning behind that action and what did this person say? What did, they're really just raging. Um, and uh, again, you can't sort of pick them up as a toddler and hold them. I mean, sometimes you can. And sometimes a hug is really important at that moment. Sometimes when they're going and you sort of find yourself, like, why am I having an argument with my five-year-old? Sometimes a hug can break the ice. So just sort of sitting with them um, next to you. That physical contact can be really helpful. Um, they're meant to have messes, and they're meant to fall apart. That's all how they're going to learn. I talked at the beginning about social and emotional competence, that going through these tough times, getting themselves over it onto the other side, are all really important. They're going to be learning skills at that sort of moment-to-moment -moment basis, those teachable moments, uh, that eventually will accrue to a child, hopefully, who can manage things better um, as they grow up. So in terms of setting limits, which again is a whole other topic, um, just a few points. Limits are good. <laughs> Kids really like limits. I can't be more concrete about that. Um, and that it's okay to set them, and it's okay if they get frustrated with you. And it's okay if they say, I hate you, mommy. Sometimes when they say, I hate you, and no one else's mommy will do this or daddy will do this, it means that you've actually struck the right note. They're trying to make you feel guilty. They're trying everything possible to get out of it. Um, they'll, you know, so it's the kind of thing where, like, they're throwing a ball in the house and you say, stop throwing the ball, stop throwing the ball and the ball breaks like a valuable something or other, or say breaks a lamp. And then there's like all this you know, crisis going on. And, in, and, and they don't want to hear it. They're afraid of, that you will no longer love them because they broke the lamp. So instead of talking about how th the matter at hand, which is ball throwing in the house, right, the rule, they'll start saying to you, you don't love me anymore. You don't love me anymore. So instead of talking about the thing that they did, the rule that they broke, they've got you over here talking about what, and then you're like, no, I do love you, I do love you. No, you don't, yes, I do. Instead of talking about following directions and why we have a rule about ball playing in the house, they've got you lost over here because the last thing you want to hear is that they don't love you anymore, right? That was like death to parent, like I don't love you anymore. But what I want you to, when you hear that, you're going to feel like you've had a, you know, a knife stuck into your heart. But then you remember, oh, I had this talk at school that day. And Michael said, you know, like, like, okay, that's fine, but we're going to talk about ball playing in the house. I, I love you very much. That's not negotiable. But here we are over here. Um, so you know, I think limit setting, again, is a topic of a, a, you know, a whole other kind of conversation. But I think it's important. Remember, you guys are in charge. They're not the boss. You're the boss. You run the show. Now, again, I'm not you know, um, promoting authoritarian parenting you know, and rigid autocrat, you know, dictatorship at homes. But I think all of us, because we can get very wound up in their verbal language and they're trying to negotiate and we want to kind of reach, at a moment at which they've broken a rule, it's not the moment to have this conversation from your cortex to their cortex. It's like, no, their deeper brain structure has impulsively had them do something they shouldn't do, and that's a moment for them to learn, you know, that really wasn't cool, that really wasn't what we do in our house, that's really kind of broken, you know, something, or you've done that before, um, and it's okay to have that conversation at that level with them. Um, less is more when it comes to language. You know, I'm fond of saying things like, you know, you want to tweet your response to your kid, you know, not have some long dissertation about the ins and outs of whatever was going on. And I think you'll find later, um, and then I'm sure you've had this experience. I had it multiple times that you're like, oh, am I being mean? Am I being mean? Um, but when you set that limit, later the kid like relaxes, right? And the child is like, an hour later, you, you know, you, you think or you say to your spouse or partner, you say, 
wow, look what, you know, Johnny did. Like, I can't believe it. Like, and because and, uh, you get caught up in their fire. They transfer the fire of the emotion up to, it, to you. And the last thing you want to do is disappoint or frustrate them. But some disappointment and some frustration um, is really okay. Because um, that's how they're going to learn. If they don't have that kind of no pain, no gain, if they don't have that kind of friction and that sense of, oh, I really want this, but I can't have it, or, oh, my, this or that, that's how they get from point A to point B. That's how they're going to learn uh, social and emotional competence. So, um, again, and part of that, and what I'll end with in terms of, um, uh, uh, in terms of that emotional comp competence is you also want to empathize with how they're feeling and use emotional language. Like, I can see that you really want to stay at the playground, or I can see that you really want to go to your friend's house, or I can see that you're really upset about this, I can see that you're mad, or I can see that you got really frustrated. And then comes the big but, <laughs> but we have to do X, or but this is important, or but the whole family is going to the airport and we're going to miss our plane. Um, but the key part is those two real parts of that equation. One is identifying, they want to be heard. Um, I was talking to a group of uh, high school teachers and talking about that teenagers want to be heard, but all kids want to be heard. They want to make sure you're listening to them. And if they know you're listening to them, you can say that but and it'll maybe mitigate it against it. You won't take away, it's not a magic pill that will stop them, oh, you empathize with me, now I get it, mom, you're so right, no. But, but they'll, if you can you know, turn down the temperature, and then you can get them back into their thinking brain, and you can sort of move them along in a direction where you'd want them to be um, most productively. Foot podcasts are a production of The Foot School an independent school for grades K-9 located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.